Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on tonight's episode of Trad Queen Story Hour. We are joined by the inestimable Inez Stepman. How, Inez, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. I, I like the name. Thank you. That was my husband's doing. He loves to name things. What have you been up to lately, Inez? Um, not much. Uh, living in, in the Jordan Neely city. Um, mm. although I will say it has not been, there is no organic protest. There is, there were a couple of, of, a uh, dozen people who are very clearly activists doing it. There's no organic traction. Um, I, I think, uh, by the way, that the fact they weren't able to get the, the grand jury indictment is huge. The fact that the DA had to charge, um, is huge. I, I, I feel pretty good actually. I'm not usually a optimistic person or a white pill person, but, um, I feel pretty good about, um, about, uh, Penny's chances in, in this case. So that's great. I'm re- actually really happy to hear that. That was going to be my first question for you was going to be like, you live here. What do you think about what's going to happen here? So it sounds like they literally have nothing. They know it. This is why they handed it over to Brad. Cause they're like, you know, poking it with a stick, like do something with it. And it's just not going to work. So you don't see this devolving into like 2020 level unrest mostly peaceful protesting no and i thought initially that it would because all the usual suspects were trying to make it into right that and i think i think it is more like the getz case um although this is much clearer cut than the getz case um in terms of of penny's actions i think are are um way way more reasonable and and i thought that getz's actions were reasonable but like it's, it's quite different if you pull out a gun and shoot four people in a subway car right versus yeah. trying to restrain somebody so i actually think you know penny has a much stronger case um but i think there's the same sort of dynamic which is you know people in new york ride the subway right um you know i'm on that same subway line i'm only a couple stops away right like Jeez, uh, yeah people people understand what it is to be threatened by somebody who has is ha- having a break with reality and like threatening people in an enclosed space they understand what that is um and i think i think again the fact that brad could not get that indictment right like the the whole thing about like oh you can get an indictment on a ham ham sandwich right um right. <laughs> the reason that's so is because the prosecutor has the opportunity to dismiss the grand jury and decide to charge a case or not himself right so if he feels mm. it's going the wrong way um, he can always pull out and he can always decide to make that decision himself and, and just dissolve the grand jury. And I think that's probably what happened. I mean, I don't know for sure. It's all, you know, there's no reporting out of this, but is, is it is an unusual thing to impanel a grand jury and then not have an indictment and then have a DA charge. I think they probably couldn't even find enough people on that grand jury to indict yes. him. That and was my question. The prosecutor giving just the prosecutor's case, right? Like there's right. no defense. There's no, <laughs> right. Um, and I, I think it's going to be really hard in the in the Getz case. Six out of the twelve jury members had been victims of street crime. Right. And I think so remind remind people what the yeah. Getz thing was. So Bernie Getz case. Yeah, I should. Um, it's it, it's it was a huge uh, cultural moment in 1984. Um, mm-hmm. Before I was born, so I did not go through this. But it's studied in every like one L class, right? Every law school right. student reads this case is very famous, right? Um, and it's this guy, Bernie Getz, and he's on the subway and he watches four young men, all black, position themselves around him in the car. And then one of them walks up to him and says, Hey man, give me, give me five bucks. Hmm. Right. And what he does in response to that is he pulls out a concealed handgun and shoots four people in the subway yeah. car. 
Yeah. Um, and in fact, he goes over somebody. Um, he, he, once the guy's on the ground, um, shot once, he goes up to one of them and says, "Here, have another." And he shoots oh him my, again. No, not good. Uh, <laughs> not and, good. Yeah. And but this is 1984, New York City, and the the, the you know with with really high crime rates, even comparatively, crime has been getting worse for the last couple of years, but it's nowhere close to the levels. At least, well, there's some statistical stuff there. It's getting worse for certain people. Um, some right. parts of New York are as bad as they were in the eighties and nineties. Um, mm. in some cities, some parts of those cities are as bad as they are in the eighties and nineties. Um, but for the general population of the city, it's not as bad. So imagine, you know, uh, more than a decade and a half of escalated crime of these kinds of subway incidents, you know, basically the cost of living in a city is that you're going to get mugged at some point. Right. right. And everybody has been through this and they're fed up with it. Um, and then comes Bernie Getz and somebody asks him for five bucks, doesn't, you know, pull out a weapon, doesn't do anything. Right. Um, but he responds as though he's about to be mugged. Right. And the turning point in the case is, was it reasonable for this guy to think that he was about to be violently mugged? In which case he responded with an appropriate level of force. Right. He was defending right. himself. And so right. the whole case turns on whether a New York jury thinks that it's reasonable to pull out a gun and shoot four people in this right. kind of high crime environment because he knew he was going to be mugged. And it turned out, yes, the jury let him go. I think the only thing he got convicted of was a handgun charge. Um, right. Now he lost in civil court and he had a million dollar judgment against him and all kinds of things. But like on the criminal case aspect of it, um, six out of those 12 jurors had been victims of street crime in New York. Hmm. And that's because they couldn't find people in New York who hadn't been. Right. Um, wow. And I think yeah. This is so he had the he had like uh, huge support in the city and in the country that was sick of violent crime, violent street crime. They were absolutely sick of it. And so he had majority support from the country. Um, and there was this huge sort of political case. Um, I think we're not quite as bad yet, but I think especially the, the contours of this case and being in the subway car, being unable to retreat while you have to like hope or guess divining the levels of complete like break with reality like what level of schizophrenia is this guy at when he's screaming that he's going to you know he doesn't mind if he he hurts everybody he's ready to hurt people he's ready to go to jail he doesn't care if he, he dies right um right. is he just a raving schizophrenic who isn't going to do anything about it about that or is he a raving schizophrenic who is going to do something about that like right or sick of having to sit there and divine the levels of of craziness um in violent people in the subway and everyone has had that moment where they're like, uh oh, this might be the guy who actually does this to me. Right. right. Um, and I think there are enough of those people in New York that he's going to have a really good jury pool. And a lot of those people are going to be very sympathetic to the fact that he restrained this guy. Yeah. Um, and, and it's very clear he didn't intend to kill him. Right. right. Um, he had the help of two other people in that car. Uh, he puts him afterwards when, when somebody notes that like he's, uh, he seems like totally out. He puts him. In, in a recovery position, which I wouldn't have not right. known how to do. Like people who are sort of right. armchair quarterbacking his fight with this guy uh, to me are just like out of touch with reality. Once you engage with someone who's violent like that, like <laughs> you can't just like d decide exactly how that's going to go and exactly what time to let go. Like it, it, it's, it's sort of playing it out as though um, it were a training exercise rather than an actual situation in, in a very enclosed space, um, with a lot of people and somebody who's potentially violent. Um, anyway, I, I'm quite optimistic because the, the protests did not really catch fire. 
despite, you know, all the usual suspects trying to make it catch fire, right? Al Sharpton, the funeral and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because people are just, people are fed up. They're fed up with yeah. crazy people on the subway. Uh, that's exactly what I thought would happen. I have to be honest. I wasn't fully familiar with the Getz case. I I knew about it in general terms, but I wasn't aware that they hadn't even been able to find a jury pool that hadn't been personally affected by this level of violence. And I was okay, thinking to myself, to be clear, I assume they couldn't because there's no way right. a competent attorney would allow a like a jury that was half victims of street crime if they could right. avoid it. Right? So <laughs> right, it right. must be such a high number of people in the jury pool that have had that experience right that they weren't yeah. able to dismiss everybody for that right right well there's just there comes a point if you allow crime to get this bad you're gonna have a hard time pe- finding people who aren't affected by it and that's what i was thinking i was thinking going into the penny thing i was like i wonder if they're even going to be able to find i was like i know this is new york city i know they lean blue i know they're super lefty Whatever. Are they even going to be able to find jury participants who have not been personally affected by this? And I was like, I don't think they are. I think he's going to find a very sympathetic jury pool, which is going to be tough for prosecutors, right? And I, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that appears to be what's happening here. So do you think he's actually going to get justice despite Alvin Bragg's best efforts? I actually think, he, and again, I am not a generally white-pilled, optimistic person about the future of this country, but I think this is one issue where it cuts through a lot of the politics. Like, people know what it's like right. to be on the subway with somebody and wondering whether, like, they're going to snap and get violent, whether the shouts, you know, the screaming. I've had people scream, like, you know, I'm going to kill Gosh. people, I'm going to kill people, I'm going to kill people. Well, like, do you know at what point that person is actually going to do it? Now, Neely had the record. Um, of doing it, which lends credibility to the idea that he is one of the guys who, in other words, that that Penny correctly read the situation, that actually this isn't yet another crazy vagrant on the subway screaming things he doesn't mean, but in fact, this is a dangerous situation. Right. right. Um, but but that's that's I kind of present the entire setup that, again, that we're supposed to divine the levels of crazy. Like when someone screams threats at you in an enclosed space, like it is reasonable to take them seriously. And there's this whole genre of commentary from people, you know, many of whom I suspect don't ride the subway. And then the other parts of of that commentary at who do are just so ideological. They literally can't be, what is it? The, they can't be mugged into reality. Right. It's Um, crazy. (laughs) They're so ideological about it, but most normal people know what that feels like. Um, right. And they, they know, like, being on the edge of, do I do something? Do I not do something? Right? What is there anybody? And then as a woman, we all know the feeling, all the women in this city, I would imagine, or the vast majority of us, know the feeling of looking around the train car when that happens and thinking, like, is one of these men going to protect me? Because I can't right. do it myself. Right? right. Like, And so I, I think to the extent that this is a really bad thing, it's the city of New York communicating to each one of those men, right? We will make your life hell. Right? We are going to to do we're going to perp walk you you know you're going to be charged um you're going to become like the face of white supremacy or whatever right if you happen to have the misfortune of having the wrong color hair um so to that extent i think this is a really bad thing but i am optimistic that they will not convict him good they should i'm so happy to hear that i'm happy to hear that and i'm happy to speak to new york maybe it's it's that far gone i don't know but i i'm i'm not pessimistic about this case Good. That's great. Well, it's, it, to me, it seems like it's hard even for the 
people who are good at spinning this, like Benjamin Crump and Al Sharpton, they are struggling to make people sympathize with someone who is actively making everyone in that train car feel like a vic- like an actual target. And we've had people come out and say, that guy was a hero, okay? We were all terrified. He was spouting this rhetoric, I think was how they put it, which is a very mild way of putting screaming, like screaming epithets at people and threatening to take a bullet. That is not something that you say with the understanding that you're just going to be like smacking someone. You intend to commit grievous bodily harm to someone on that train when you say things like that. I'm not afraid to go to jail. I'm not afraid to die, okay? I'm not afraid to take a bullet, I feel like that definitely, I feel like that certainly crosses a line between, oh, you know, he was just having a rough day. You should have reached out and tried to help him, which is exactly what his family's lawyers came out and said. They were like, why didn't you offer to help? I'm like, you put everyone on this train in this position, okay? Your policies, the policies that you voted for, put everyone in this situation. The people on the train should not be the people who have to make that kind of decision. They're just normal people just trying to get from point A to point B and avoid eye contact and not cause trouble, right? You put them in this situation. Now you're like, well, they should have done something, you know, pragmatic and nice and been friendly. No, it's too late. It's too late when someone's had 42 violations, you know, been arrested 40 something different times and have attempted to kidnap people. Like there is absolutely no spinning your way out of this one. So that's one case in New York City. Yes. What did you think about the PA? That lady who got into it with those young men over the oh, bicycle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Can I just say one more thing about. Yeah, yeah. This case before we move to that one, um, th- there's two points. One, I cannot believe that Neely's family is standing there. Um, they sh- they really should be ashamed of themselves. If anyone had a responsibility yeah. to Jordan Neely to not allow him to get this far, it was his family, not the people right. on that subway car, and not even you know the city of New York. But let's move to the second culprit here, which is the decisions of the city of New York of New York. Jordan Neely never should have been there. Right. He should be alive today and in that was jail unfair. or some, some right. kind of lockup facility for the criminally insane. He never should have been on a subway, you know, roaming the F, the F line, right? Because in a normal, decent society, you know, somebody who has 42 different arrests for increasingly violent acts, including punching a 67-year-old woman in the face, okay, that person should not be inflicted on the rest of society. Now, right. either... He should go to jail for criminal acts or if he's so, uh, you know, out of touch re- with reality that he can't, you know, be be held accountable for those those uh, attacks um, because he's, he doesn't know where he is half the time. Then we need to bring back, in, you know, uh, committing these people, involuntarily committing. Right. These people. So mm. he had been in and out of mental facilities. He had been given prescribed medication. He's refusing to take it. He just walked out, right? Because they don't, we don't involuntarily hold people for longer than right. a few days. We, we are unwilling to confront what's happened since we've deinstitutionalized. Basically, we, we've gotten rid of all of these like uh, long-term facilities for people not with quote unquote mental health problems, the, the way that the left is constantly shoveling money at like, you know, guidance counselors for depression and anxiety. Right. No, 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 not quote unquote mental health problems. We're talking about like schizophrenia, breaks with reality, paranoid delusions, like in, mm-hmm. in people who are violent. So we need to figure out what we're going to do with those people. Right now they're in and out of jail. I don't think right. that's the best solution, but right. any solution that, that makes it so that they're not on the subway car threatening people is better than what we have. Um, yeah. And so they, the people who are responsible 
for Jordan Neely's death, in my view, is not Penny. I actually I feel very bad for him. He did the right thing. He obviously didn't mean to kill this guy. Now he's going to have to live with that for the rest of his life. Even right. aside from the publicity and everything else, and and you know, obviously his life will never be the same again, right? Um, but the people who are responsible for this are the people who think that it's quote unquote compassionate to have criminally insane people with 42 arrests running around the city as though that's the more compassionate thing than finding some solution to keep them outside of mainstream society and perhaps hmm. keep them from being a danger to themselves and others. That's, that is the responsibility here. He never should have been there and Penny should have gotten his destination and we shouldn't have known his name. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I agree. Totally. I think, sorry, that was my rant for that thing. We can talk. Oh, no, you're, else. you're fine and you're correct. And I want it. Now I have to add my own thing because I think people don't understand what compassion actually looks like. They think compassion is just letting people do whatever they want. And that is not the case when you have someone who has severe mental difficulties like Jordan Neely had. That is not compassionate. Compassion would look much more like involuntary commitment for some period of time until you can get him sufficiently oriented to reality. However, you do that with therapy, with medication, you make it happen so that he is in a sound frame of mind and can make the decision. You know what? I really actually do need to be on this medicine in this situation. I can make this choice for myself. Jordan Neely would not have been in a position to make a decision about his own mental health care at this point. He was a danger to himself and others. And for that, I truly feel bad because I don't think anyone chooses to have schizophrenia. I think you can choose to take drugs that make it worse. Um, but at a certain point, I worked in a cardiac unit. I saw kids who were younger than me come in who had burned out their heart valves because they were in a situation with addiction that it was compulsive, right? They didn't have a say over what they were doing anymore. It's not a matter of character at this point, at that point. It's a physiological demand where if you don't have this drug, you'll die which is a tough spot to be in. Right. Um, and I think that, that Jordan Neely would have been much better served, much better with much uh, stronger, tough love than he was getting in New York city. And I think that they're failing people in that regard because they think they're being compassionate and they're not, but yeah, I don't live there. You live there. So I'll defer to your take, but it sounds like we have really similar stances on that. And I think that's, that's probably closer to the truth than what we're seeing from the left right now. But I did want to ask you about the lady who was the hospital employee. People are calling her a nurse. She's not a nurse. She's a physician's assistant. She went to school for a long time for it. She was six months pregnant and she got into it with these four young black guys who said that she was trying to take their bike from them. What do you think about that? And where do you think that's going to end up? Honestly, I think very much uh, this reminds me of the Central Park Karen case. Right. right? Yeah. Um, Karen where Cooper. Where had to move to Canada to get away from it. Um, it, it, these are what are essentially unpleasant disputes that happen in the city all the time. Right. right? Um, I don't think, cause I, I watched that video. It didn't strike me that they were really being dangerous either. Right. Um, right. The, the guys involved, they were screwing with her. Real right? rude. And, was she? Right. They were screwing with her. It's not a, like, not a, a good thing to do, but, um, I didn't get the sense that she was in like real immediate danger from them either, but it's really unpleasant to be screwed with like that. And you don't know when it's going to turn dangerous and so on. So I understand why she was distressed, but um, at the end of the day, just like the, the, the that uh, central park case where it turned over, you know, whether 
uh, like whether it's the hour to have your dog off leash in the park or whatever. These are the kind of right. disputes that people get into, particularly when they're living on top of each other in a city, right? All the time. And the, the, the remarkable thing about this is not that it happened. It's that, you know, now when you video something like that, then it goes viral and it gets racialized, right? Um, right. So, I mean, that was my impression of, of, of that, which is like, these things happen all the time. Um, right. Sometimes people are just, you know, I don't know if I can swear on this or not, but some people are just jerks to each other all the time. Right. Um, right. Th- th- this is like part of life is dealing with jer- dealing with jerks. But the difference is now we have such a politically and racially charged environment. We videotape that. Right. And you say, oh, OK, like white woman tears or whatever. Um, and it becomes like a, like a stand in for some large dynamic mm-hmm. um, that isn't even factually true. In, in the case, right? Because she, she had rented the bike. They, in fact, they were scoring with her after she rented it. Um, right. I imagine the ultimate point is actually to uh, to take the bike and keep it on her account, right? Exactly. Yeah, um, that's kind of what I was thinking. That, that's kind of the feeling I was getting, but I, I don't have any, you know, real knowledge of, of... But in any case, the problem is, of course, that it gets, like, funneled through our racialized discourse, like... And I think that's what they tried with Penny, but um, I think work. it didn't work very well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if, if perhaps because the two other guys were were not white who were helping him restrain right. Neely, and perhaps because everyone has this like experience, whereas this harassment of the bike is is probably um, you know there's probably a smaller percentage of people who who've been through that kind of harassment or that particular right. kind of like street engagement. But right. um, but yeah, I mean I. I don't know. I like it. It seems like sort of a silly thing. I'm kind of remarkable that we we are talking about it at all in 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 the way that the Penny case seems much more serious to me. But like, um, this it's remarkable that we're talking about this, right? Like, right? Why? Right. Okay. Be. Some like yeah. some guys hassle the lady for a bike. Like, okay, okay this happens. <laughs> you know, probably thousands of times every day across the country in big cities. Like. Why is this important? Well, it's because it's funneled to, you know, sort of a, a set of racial grifters who then turn it into a uh, grift for the racial mill or whatever. Um, but, but at the end of the right, day, it just right. seems like one of those disputes with jerks that happens quite frequently. Yes. I feel like this is probably extremely frequent in New York City, just based on the personalities, the generalized personas <laughs> of the people who live there tend to be a little rough around the edges because they have to be. I mean, you're living on top of tons of other people completely understand why you would not be soft and squishy and just go along to get along. You kind of have to be rough and ready to tangle with people. And I feel like when you're six months pregnant, you get a little bit of leeway because first of all, if you just worked 12 hours, your feet are definitely swollen and you're about to bike home, right? First of all, incredibly ambitious props to her for being willing to bike home after 12 hours on her feet at six months pregnant. That's pretty impressive. But then for these guys to just hassle her and be jerks, with the understanding that they were going to record it. I believe it was them that were recording it um, and then have it go viral. Just so shitty. Excuse my language. It really is. The understanding is that people will take our side because we live in a racialized world and we're going to go viral. We're going to be super popular and everyone's going to think this lady is a jerk and mean and a Karen and crazy. Um, Do you think the term Karen is racialized? I've seen this this debate go on uh, this is a rare one i usually agree with matt walsh i usually agree with like a lot of his like takes that get ratioed or whatever i i, I usually agree <laughs> with matt walsh but on this one i i don't think it's really 
too racialized? Yes. I mean, in the same sense, it, it is like the emblematic Karen is, is a middle-aged white woman. Right. Right. Um, but it's also, it's also a type, right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, there's a reality to it. There is like the sort of busybody middle-aged woman who asked for the manager, uh, archetype. So in that sense, I don't, I don't consider it like, I certainly don't consider it a slur. I think that was where I would, is it slightly racialized? Yes. But is it in a, in a, a way that I would worry about? Not really. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's like the equivalent of, of a slur. It's- sure. Sure. Well, my test is always, is there a comparable insult in the other direction? And there just is not. Um, for whatever reason, it's okay to, and let's be real, Karens are kind of unpleasant people. Like we've all seen the lady who is making a big deal out of nothing, right? The lady who's calling the cops because someone's being loud, whose kids are playing in the backyard. How dare they? And the kind of moral busybody that none of us really like, at least in our society, very, very respected in other societies, which is always interested, interesting to me for the ladies who sit on the front porch and keep an, a very close eye on things and some of these more closely knit communities, cultures, but the ladies who do that here not liked and and i do think i tend to think it is racialized but i don't think it's a slur again also not a huge deal i just think i do have to say i think that it's becoming okay to throw white people to the wolves for any degree of virtue signaling and i see that as being a big problem going forward i'm concerned about i know we don't really have that much in common with south africa but i'm concerned about that kind of racial division rising and and becoming a problem that we don't know how to control you know what i'm saying and and that's not a concern that i air very often but i think that it's something that we might want to consider we could learn from other countries um, I know that in Washington, I think it is in Seattle, they're trying to run their town hall meetings literally like South Africa. They've said that that's what they want to do, where they'll just allow anyone to come in and talk, which is fine in theory. But I don't think South Africa is a good role model for pretty much anything because they're crazy over there. So I don't know. But yeah, that's a little bit of, 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 of a day. Yeah, yeah. Least, uh, <laughs> I hope they're not trying to duplicate South Africa in terms of putting burning tires on people's necks. <laughs> Right. Um, I mean, I, I think you're right. I, I don't think this is a particularly good instance of it. This this Karen thing. Right. Um, but I I do think that racial tensions in this country are extremely worrying, and to the extent that when you have this dynamic, for example, as you said, like these these uh, young black men, they they know that they can use that racial dynamic. It's going to be end up being used in all kinds of personal situations for all kinds of reasons. Um. And and it's certainly true that uh, that that for example the like you're going to be on the back foot in any one of these these kinds of altercations that again happen all the time in between you know uh, different races of people um, in in every order possible right uh, now I'm talking not about crime which you can say statistically it's much more likely um, that that the perpetrators and the victims both are going to be young black men between right. the ages of about fifteen and and forty. Um, but in the, these kind of cases of like sort of neighbor, not really neighbor, but like city disputes between people, you know, I've seen it go on between any number of, of escalating list of ethnicities on each side. Um, but you're going to superimpose that larger racial dynamic, which, which I, I do agree with you is worrying and it, it becomes impossible to sustain. I mean, it's impossible to sustain a system that rewards people um for uh bringing up a racial dynamic and for using 
uh, the attributes um, of, of being an ethnic minority, you, there are huge rewards in our system for that, right? right? Um, you right. get into a, a better school. Uh, you're more likely mm-hmm. to be hired. This is the exact opposite of what you know the left says. There is not a company in America that isn't bending over backwards to hire UEMs, right? Um, underrepresented URMs underrepresented minorities. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> right? um, there, there, there's not a, there's not a corporation in this country um, that is aggressively trying to hire um, anyone but straight white men. Right. Right. Um, right. And so when you reward that kind of behavior, you're going to get more of it. And tribalism, I agree with you. I mean, tribalism is, is racial tribalism is a very deep instinct of, of human humanity. Right. And right. if you, start rewarding it and feeding it it's you know it's difficult enough it's a difficult project to live in a multi-ethnic republic it's it's not right. a you know america's playing on on uh on the hard level right uh, we are not like most european countries for example basically borders drawn more or less around a tribe uh and then had like immigration coming in on top of that right, right. we are genuinely multi-ethnic and have been from the right. beginning now not as far-flung regions of the world as we are now um but like there, it was a very different thing to be German versus to be, you know, be um, uh, Scottish or Scots Irish or Irish versus English, right? Um, right? So America doesn't have that like sort of ethnic tribal origins that then were drawn around. It was always a conglomerate of tribes, and then more and more tribes. Right by the time you get to the nineteenth century, you have huge waves of Italian immigration. You know, uh, you know, Eastern Europeans, Jews, right? Like. Um, and, and that gets each one of those waves, large waves of immigration has, it has not been smooth when people say like, oh, it was so easy. I mean, there's a huge amount of upheaval and violence in the 19th century, right. um, <laughs> between these different ethnic groups. So we're playing on the hard level. It is hard to integrate so many different peoples with so many different traditions. Um, right. but we have done a pretty good job of it. Right. Um, and, and so it's very easy to upset that, that balance. And, and I worry about, you know, <laughs> America, America's strength is not in our diversity. We need a very strong homogenizing civic culture. Right. In order to accommodate the diversity of America. And that's something that we have not only not done for the last 50 years, but gone extremely in the opposite direction of, of cultivating and teaching people that, that bringing grievances, racial grievances to the fore of politics will be rewarded. And so, yes, yes, I, I mean, I, I very much agree with, your general trajectory. I just, I just don't think this particular incident did not sort of bring right, right. all the, the correct, whatever parts of my brain that, that, um, <laughs> you know, Oh, this is emblematic of something. If anything, right. I think it's emblematic of, of the very bad sort of racial perspective of the mainstream left, um, yeah. that they are trying to jam all these incidents into that narrative and then increasingly failing on the facts. Right. For sure. So do you think, okay, so uh, two prong question here. Do you think there is a rising level of racialized resentment that's being um, artificially pumped into the U S systems? Cause that's always my question is, do you think that this is a conspiracy ooh, of some kind, or is it some o- kind of overarching plan by whoever is putting this into effect? Do you think there's rising resentment and do you think it's a conspiracy of some kind or artificial at least? So I do. There's, it's obvious that there's rising resentment. If you look at, if you track, there's long-term polls that show uh, views of race relations among different races, right? And and we mm. basically all agree that this that race relations are much worse than they were in the 1990s. Um, right. 
And so, and, and again, I don't think that you can, when you start rewarding one ethnicity over another, you are going to build resentment. Eventually, the, the straight white boys of Appalachia are going to get extremely fed up with the fact that they're the only people who are not getting the, the, the goodies from, right. from our society, right? And, and they'll be right to be fed up because it's accurate. Probably the most difficult way to get into Harvard today is by being, uh, you know, bright, young white man in Appalachia. Hmm. Um, and well, that and being an overachieving, uh, male Asian. Kid yeah. <laughs> from for sure. The Bay area. Um, but you know, th th they'll be right to, they'll be right to start thinking of themselves as an ethnic group and start demanding, uh, sort of goodies on the basis of eth ethnicity. So, I mean, I think it's inevitable. And then on top of that, you layer for the last 50 years, the, the I think starting, starting in the late 60s, really, the, the new left that sees all of America's sort of civic religion, right? Um, the the uh, lionization of our founding, the, the repetition of, of the creeds from the Declaration of Independence, um, sees that all as fake and uh, cover over of a, a very vicious racial hierarchy. Um, right. Those two elements combined, I think, are an extremely combustible racial situation. So that's one. Um, is it a conspiracy? I guess it depends how you define conspiracy. I think people very sincerely believe this. I mean, when you look at sort of polls um, of millennials and Gen Z, you see that they know very little about their country. Um, so right. only about one in, one in five people under 40 can pass the citizenship exam that my parents took to come to this country. And believe me, I helped them, my dad study for it when I was in third grade. It's not complex stuff. Right. How many years in a senator's term, you know, what are the two houses of Congress? What are the three branches yeah. of the federal government, right? Um, so they know almost nothing. We know almost nothing about American history. Um, but what millennials and Gen Z are very, very certain of is that this is a racist and bad country. And something right. like a third of incoming college freshmen believe that the United States invented slavery, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> so this is this very combustible combination of ignorance and then encouragement of grievance um, hmm. that I don't think bodes well for racial harmony in this country. That's for sure. Is it done on purpose? I think people really genuinely are. I think the left ideology is something that people actually adhere to. They actually believe it. I, I, I mean, so to that extent, I don't think it's a conspiracy. That being said, I think it's, it's been, it's been an institutional triumph, right? Yes. That, the, that this radical ideology, the only difference, something I, I try to make clear in a lot of things that I do. Uh, there is no difference between the left in the 1990s and the left today, other than institutional power. All hmm. of this stuff, this is not new. It's right. just that particular fringe of the left has been in academia, right? Um, and and has sort of replicated itself through uh, academia and sending out their little soldiers into every institution. And eventually that we've come to a tipping point where there are enough ideological soldiers in all of these institutions. You actually start seeing it in, in the liberal institutions first, right? So the New York Times is sort of left liberal paper has basically a cultural revolution, right? But right. there there are people teaching all the same things in university um, in 1990 
there, there's very little new now a little bit on the trans stuff is new but even that i mean if you read butler like most of the stuff oh, was yeah. baked in you read stuff from 1968 they're talking about you know the alliance of black lesbians who yeah. hate america i mean it, it's it's right. <laughs> it's actually not that different ideologically content wise it's not that different it's not that everybody went crazy all of a sudden it's that they've done a good job of of uh taking over the institutions and at a certain point there, there there was something that felt very fast for people who weren't paying attention because all right. of a sudden all of these institutions one after the other seem to like repeat the the lines right even word for word for example in 2020 now 2020 to me really felt like regime change oh yeah um you know statues coming down every organization repeats the the holy words about BLM, right? Every organization, even conservative quote unquote organizations released these statements about BLM and about, you know, the systemic racism of, of America. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I, I guess oftentimes I feel like conspiracy to the extent that conspiracy theorists are wrong about the structure of things. Um, I think it's just because it's much more out in the open um, and much more bureaucratic and much more organized. You know, it's it's not one person pulling the strings. It's best practices of the bureaucracy. Right. Um, and that's actually requires a different solution than hmm. just knocking off some some evil guys pulling the strings at the top. Now, there are plenty of evil, evil guys pulling the strings at the top. Too. Sure. <laughs> um, but but I, I actually find that to be less of a scary problem than I think confronting bureaucracy and institutionalized ideology is much harder and requires much more strategic um, and smart uh, action than determining, okay, this, this guy at the top, you know, can fix, can either fix everything. I think it's a very like boomer mentality, actually, like one weird trick to fix the country. Um, <laughs> right. And yes. I think the problem is much more serious than that, actually. Right. It would be easy, right? If you could target one or two people and be like, okay, we need to remove them from power, peacefully or non-peacefully, and then we're good. That's not the case. And we see this, especially in the like institutions like the FBI. We see it in what was called the permanent state or the deep state. These things run deep. There are people who are true believers at every level of these institutions. And I make, I always make the distinction between the true believer and the person who's just the acolyte, right? The person who will parrot the phrases just to make sure that, you know, they repeat the shibboleths like SBF is renowned for saying that get them into these clubs that, that keep them from being eschewed, but they're not the actual true believers who push this stuff forward. So it would be so much simpler if we could just target someone or some maybe even a single idea, but it's not a single person and it's not a single idea. It's shot through everything and it is everywhere. So very well done. Institutional takeover from the left for sure. Actually kind of admirable. Um, why can't there, mind, there is no uh, possibility of any kind of serious victory for the right that doesn't involve com a complete reorganization of the administrative state. There, yes. there is no way that we can continue to elect presidents who then spend most of their term fighting with the fifth columnists who actually implement the executive branch, um, yes. which is why there's nothing more. Again, I don't know if I can swear on here. You did. So there's nothing <laughs> a little more bit, retarded yeah. than imagining <laughs> yes. that that like people say like, oh, well, you know, 
it was Trump's FBI who did this and that. I'm like, do you understand how anything not works his in Washington? FBI. It right. wasn't Trump's FBI. These are career officials. They have a perspective. It's usually sort of neoliberal center left. I actually imagine somebody like Bernie might have some some difficulty as well um, mm-hmm. managing oh, yeah. federal bureaucracy. But but Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, that is exactly their speed. The bureaucracy hums very happily for them. You know, churning out all of all of the policy that they would like. Um, sometimes policy that that directly contradicts what's what's uh you know passed in law in congress like what's happening with title nine now where we've redefined sex to include gender identity so a bill that i don't even agree with this including sex in the civil rights amendment don't even agree with that on that space but that's that's right. what congress did now to protect the, the sex-based rights of women in education is now going to destroy women's sports sororities you know so like and that's on the basis of of you know bureaucratic regulation it's advancing policy um and there are more insidious ways to do it as well but like the idea that we can continue to have 80 percent of the country's affairs managed by unelected bureaucrats who do not have any interest in listening to the president congress or anyone else that we elect um that has to change or we're not going to get anywhere i mean there's there's not really any two ways about it like this this should be issue number one for Anybody who wants to win on anything else, issue number one, we need to be able to fire these people. And that requires doing something like a hundred years of civil service protections. It's going to be hard. Um, It's it's going to be very difficult, but it it is necessary. We have to be able to fire these people um, because right now there's no carrot and there's no stick. They basically cannot be fired. There's, they had to pass a separate law, um, in 2017, Congress had to pass an entire law uh, because the protections are so strong for the civil service. Um, you couldn't fire people for watching porn at work. Wow. So Congress had to pass a law that said, circumventing the usual civil service protections, if you <laughs> come to work and spend eight hours watching porn on government computers, we can fire you. Crazy. That wasn't possible before. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's nuts to me. But it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be, right? Because they, you're right, there's no carrot, there's no stick. I have to ask you, one of the things that I observed in Florida, and I am a DeSantis fan. People call me a DeSantis simp, whatever. I, Trump, ego fixed. I have such a hard time with him at this point. And I am very, very pro-life. So listening to him say things like, um, actually abortion isn't really a winning issue. So I'm going to kind of move away from that. Not going to work for me. What do you think about what DeSantis did in Florida where he went in and he fired people as much as he was able? And he's actually being sued by one of the attorneys that he fired who had been put in place by Soros. Do you think that's something that could be replicated or at least attempted at the federal level if DeSantis were by some miracle that's not going to happen to get into office? Um, well, the short answer is no, because it requires Congress. Mm. Um, now, there are some things the executive can do. And in fact, Trump has put out some some very good ideas to, to sort of uh, right. push back. Uh, what he was going to do before leaving office, Schedule F reforms, um, Sounds very, very boring. It is. Uh, it's incredibly important. Um, at least to, get to put some top tier of these guys in high positions. So, I mean, I think this is one of these issues that, like, uh, sounds very boring, but if you put it very simply, 
to people, they immediately understand why it's completely screwed up, right? Right. Imagine if it took two years and the equivalent of a civil case to fire anybody for cause right. in the right. private sector. None of us operate under that kind of protection in our employment. None of us. Right. Right. Um, but federal employees do, and they show it by voting for the and donating to the party that that keeps them their bureaucracy growing, right? Which of is, course, of um, course. In 2016, I think 95 percent of donations from federal employees went to Hillary Clinton. Right. Duh. So, Duh. <laughs> so imagine every every Republican president is implementing whatever policy they want. Assume that everyone working for them has the politics of a faculty lounge. Right. And hmm. they can't be fired and they can't even really be promoted. You can kind of send them to the basement, you know, <laughs> trying to get them out of the way. Um, right. But it's it's a very, very difficult situation. Uh, there's some things that can be done by executive order. But I really think this is this is where actual leadership. And here's where I will say DeSantis, um, not on this particular issue, but I think the way that he's shown leadership in Florida is very important. Florida was a purple state. The Republican right. Party in Florida before DeSantis was just as squishy as the Republican Party in Texas or anywhere else. Right. Um, yeah. They were not going to, you know, go the way that DeSantis has pushed them into. He has been very good at wrangling his own party. He has got right. every Republican in Florida either enthusiastically on his side, whatever he does, or terrified that he's going to endorse their primary opponent. And right. that is actually how you get things done. I don't know if you remember like the whole um what is it, the the whole uh thing about healthcare, like repealing Obamacare and all that, and how like there was just like twelve different plans and it was mm -hmm. like hurting cats. And to my mind, that was a big failure of Trump's leadership because he's the president. Yes. Mm -hmm. Theoretically and like the, you know, Bill on Capitol Hill way that we a government is supposed to work, the legislature is supposed to present him with a plan that he either signs or doesn't. That's not the way things work. He's the head of the party. He needed to put forward contours of a plan that he would sign and then whip votes. Right. But that didn't happen because he's not interested in it. Right. right. Um, but that, that I think DeSantis would be very good at. And right. what has also encouraged me is he is very strategic in going after the institutional power at the left. What right. he's done in education, both K-12 and in higher ed, I think has been a revolution. I think every single Republican governor, there's not actually any excuse why every single Republican governor is not following him in doing that. Um, so I, I think he's, he's done an excellent job uh, of being, and that, that's what makes me, I, I, I've also said like, I'll probably vote for DeSantis in the primary. Um, I don't know what kind of chance he has, but if, if I had my drivers, druthers as to who to drop into the White House, my worry with Trump is, uh, that that he doesn't have the focus to actually follow hmm. through on a lot of the things that that he cares about, which are good ideas. Right. Um, right. That he is then therefore easily. The federal government is huge and has many many tentacles, um, and he's kind of content to let a lot of it operate as long as it doesn't touch on something personal that he cares about. Um, right. And so that's how you end up having really bad advisors. That's how you end up, at, you know, having like like the grand achievements of the Trump administration were a tax cut and uh, criminal justice reform. Okay, uh, letting more criminals out on the streets. Those right. are the legislative achievements. Now I know that that's not the priorities that Trump came into office with. 
but that's what happens. Um, and I, I'm not convinced that he's really learned his lesson on that. Now I, if, if he's a nominee, I hope, I hope he has learned it. Um, right. Yeah. He certainly has learned that the deep state wants to shank him and that's something personal yeah. he can understand. So in that <laughs> right. sense, I'm, I'm optimistic. Yeah. I definitely hope that you're right. And I think you might be, but I'm not, con- I'm not convinced he's learned because I remember my frustration that he would, well, I don't want to get into too much a tangent on him, but I remember my frustration that he would go and give these interviews where he would just get, you know, tripped up in every conceivable way and that he just gave the media everything they wanted. And it's, it's very clear now there was an article, I think possibly from the Atlantic, probably from one of these other places. I cannot keep track of where these things come from, but the title was Joe Biden is desperately seeking Donald Trump. That is how Joe Biden wins again. And that's how Joe Biden won in the first place. People are like, this could not possibly have happened. This is crazy. No, People were fed a steady diet of Trump is evil, Trump is evil, Trump is evil for four years. And when they were finally given an opportunity to put someone else in his place, they said, yes, whatever, whatever it takes, whoever it is, doesn't matter. Um, and I think that's what happened in 2020. And I will get pushback probably from people who think that there was undoubtedly some kind of shady business. We know that they, what we know the steps they went through to try and make sure that they could check all the appropriate boxes and make it happen for them. But the fact is that Trump, I still feel like watching him spend $15.3 million to smear Ron DeSantis instead of doing other more productive stuff, like attacking his actual future opponent in 2024 is just, it smacks of egotism to me. And it really makes me think that he hasn't learned his lesson. I hope I'm wrong. I really do. Everyone's like, oh, you hate Trump now. I'm like, I'm well, not he's, a never he's never, he's, he's never going to not be an egotist. That's not happening. Oh, yeah, right. the, man is, the man is right. in his seventies. He's not, he's not going to change. He's not going to change. Yeah. <laughs> no, he is an egotist. Actually, I think Ben Shapiro has a pretty good handle on, on Trump, which is, you know, um, he's a hammer looking for a nail and, Right, uh, right. Sometimes he smacks yeah. the what is it that that Ben a says? A nail. Like, sometimes he smacks a baby. Sma- yeah, sometimes he smacks a nail and it's very satisfying, and he hammers that in. Um, sometimes he smacks a baby and it's not as satisfying. Right, not good. Um, no, but I mean, he, he is obsessed with the personal, right? He has right. no ability to separate himself. What I'm hoping for is something else, um, which is that enough of the right people have personally wounded him, but. He will be the hammer in the right place. Um, right. I don't know if that, I mean, I just, I don't have any hope that Trump will not be an egotist. Um, sure. And but, but I, I will dispute <laughs> one part of your analysis. Um, the election was very close. Was it 30,000 votes across three states? Hmm. Um, and Joe Biden, and that's in counting for all of the sort of change. Let's, let's, let's leave out shenanigans uh, and just say the changes to the vote rules. Right. In public um, right. beforehand. Um, so even in that environment, even that f- favorable environment, plus you have COVID um, and like a non-normal environment. And he's the president. Uh, he's the captain of the ship when the ship took uh, some very rough seas. Right. Um, right. That's it's, fair it's important to remember, yeah. like in 2019, the conventional wisdom is Trump is going to cruise to re-election. Right. right. And, of course. Yeah, I remember that. And I think the normalcy pitch from Biden 
was much more effective in in that moment than it may be this time around. Um, And yes, maybe people hate Trump that much, but I do think there are probably some people, independents in the middle, who are like, well, you know, the economy was doing kind of well before all this happened. You know, uh, I I, I don't think that that it's impossible for Trump to win. I I, I I don't think it's impossible for Ron DeSantis to win. I I, I think... To the extent that I, that I worry it's impossible for either of them to win, it has to do with the voting rules and not right. normal p- politics. Right. right? Um, to the Good extent point. that if we assume that the voting rules are not going to be insane, I think both of them have a decent chance to win. I mean, I think it would be foolish to imagine that Trump can't win. Um, I hope you're right. I really so, do. <laughs> I really do. Because that's something that's... Votes. All he has right. to swing is 30,000 votes and, and he's from the last election and... I think the conditions are quite different, even aside from people like us who follow all this stuff. The feeling of the average American in the middle of COVID, whether whichever side of the COVID wars they're on, this is like a huge and scary event. And the president doesn't seem like he has a handle on it. Right. right? And maybe that's unfair. Like maybe nobody has a handle on it. I don't know. But that's the feeling that the country was in. And now... Um, and especially with the riots, by the way, I think one I think one of the biggest mistakes of Trump's presidency was not sending the National Guard to shut down the, yeah. the riots. There was he some precedent right. that, yes, he would be pushing the precedent of sending the National Guard. I would normally be afraid of that. The impression that he gave the country was, good luck. You're on your own. I'm going to tweet law and order in big capital letters. <laughs> and, yeah. And that, I think, I think that as vastly under- uh, sort of appreciated as a moment where he lost the election. Mm, um, interesting. Maybe but, so. But all of that was, you know, it'll be four years in the past. Right. The problems we're dealing with right now, the quote unquote normalcy that Joe Biden has delivered. Not good. You know, <laughs> I, I, anyway, I, I think he can win. I think either one of them can win. I think they can probably win differently. As in Ron DeSantis mm, yeah. is going to have the more traditional Republican path to victory, which is, He's going to do, he's probably a better candidate in Georgia. He's probably a better candidate in um, Arizona, in Nevada, right? Some of these like more traditional swing states. Donald Trump's a better, better candidate in Pennsylvania and in in the blue wall. But a lot of, I mean, in Michigan, um, you know, a lot of those, that's where the voting rules are really going to matter is, is the yes. voting rules in that, that um, blue wall states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Minnesota, like that's a problem for the Trump campaign, the fact that the voting yeah. rules are the way they are there. That's that's Trump's big sort of electoral Trump card, I guess. Yeah. Trump's Trump card. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. I think you know, reliant on that because I think he's probably more interested in the traditional Republican coalition of bringing in the Southwest and Georgia and all these states. So, Right. Well, you've kind of shifted my perspective a little bit because my concern has always really been on the weaknesses that I see coming from Trump and my genuine deep concern as a mother, future mother, I'm very concerned about winning in 2024. And I've always looked at Trump as definitely like this liability. And I viewed DeSantis as more as an asset. But you're right about the the voting rules and all this other stuff that they used in 2020. If that's not dealt with, it's a non-issue because we can look at how unpopular Biden is right now and how bad the economy is for the regular person. But if they have the tools to make this happen, they will use them again. This just needs to be a landslide election, right? It needs to be unmistakable. It needs to be the kind of victory that can't be stopped 
with rule changes. No, and nothing would be better for this country than a landslide election. And right. I, I say that even if it were a landslide against, I mean, that would sort of be the end of the Republican Party, I think. But uh, right. if, if this country needs a landslide election, I don't think it's going to get it right. We're going to mm-hmm. get another we're going to get another election where, you know, the rules are unclear, where there's a lot of potential fraud, where and, and nothing could be worse for, you know, the faith of people in their elections right. than that. But I think that's what we're going to get. Yeah, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Well, yeah. And I think I do think that it's true, though, that you can't stake all of the weight on the quality of the candidates because we have Trump who is the hammer looking for the nail. And we know this and people appreciate his aggression and all this other stuff. We have DeSantis who has incredibly sound actual conservative principles that he's really put into action that is making his state flourish. Unlike any other state in the country right now, we have two very viable candidates that could easily defeat Biden because Biden is doing a horrendous job. Like, I don't even think that needs to be said. It's unspeakable how much damage he's already done just in the time he's been in. So it should be easy. I would love to have a landslide. You're right. I think that would really reunite people and reconvince them that this is actually going to work. Like this experiment we've been performing for the past 200 plus years is actually going to be okay after all. Um, Yeah, I don't think we get that without completely overhauling the permanent state. And obviously that's not going to happen under a Democrat. So we definitely need to win one way or the other. I was going to ask you about Target and Bud Light and Anheuser-Busch, but we're pretty much out of time. So you're going to have to come back later. And as I love talking to you, thank you so much for joining me today. We're coming at right at an hour and I want to value your time. So I will let you go. Where can people find you? Um, well, first of all, it's it's been it's been a great conversation. Thank you for having me. Um, you can find my work and the work of my colleagues at Independent Women's Forum IWF.org. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Inez Felcher I N E Z F E L T S C H E R. It's my maiden name. You can also type in Inez Stepman, and you'll find it. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. I really value your input. I like you as a lady who is like less agreeable. And I know this is going to sound like an insult. So bear with me here. I appreciate you because you're not as agreeable and as complacent as most ladies, right? Most of us are going to go along to get along, but you and I, I think are kind of on the same wavelength because we're like, no, I think I know what's true. And I'm going to tell you what I think is true. And that's how it's going to be. And I really, really respect that. I kind of want to like build an alliance of women who are not afraid to be a little bit disagreeable and push back because that's what we need. I really think that's what we need to hold ladies accountable in general and to really like get our society back on the right page. So thank you for being the person you are. I really you appreciate that your we're ideologically trans. That, well, maybe possibly so, which I think is great. I love that term and I'm going to start using it. I think I love it, <laughs> but thank you so much for joining me. Inez. I will let you go now. And to my audience, thank you so much for joining us this evening because this will be aired in the evening. I appreciate your attendance for sure. Inez is a great thinker. You guys should follow her on Twitter until next time. Bye guys. <laughs>